0: Shunning is to cease interaction with a particular group or individual. And this is something that can apply within religions or within other belief systems. It can even apply within clubs like fraternities or groups like unions. And the purpose of shunning is that it's a means of maintaining control. If you step out of line, you will be punished with exile from the larger group, from a group that you consider yourself to be a part of. Sometimes this is used to right what is seen as an incorrect behavior telling them to step back in line or you will be out of the group for good. And sometimes it's used to keep an outlier from influencing the rest of the group. If you can get the larger population of the group to look away from this outcast, it's a lot less likely that their willfulness and that their divisiveness will be contagious. It's a lot less likely that the rest of the flock will fall prey to these dangerous ideas. In some cases, shunning requires a person's own family to ignore them completely. This is the case within certain religions, Jehovah's Witnesses and Scientologists in particular come to mind. If you are outcast from the church, you are shunned, you are ignored by everybody in your family, everybody in your group of friends, everybody from your church, everybody that was once central to your life, and so you are suddenly alone in the world. Because everybody that was central to your day-to-day experience is suddenly ignoring you, ceasing communication. This is an extreme form of what's called relational aggression, where one's relationships are used as a weapon, again, sometimes to coerce better behavior or to remove one's influence with the group, but also sometimes as a warning to those still within the group to behave, or they might be next. It's also been shown that sacrificing for a group or a cause can often make you feel more strongly, positively about that group or cause rather than the opposite. And so forcing a group to sacrifice in that they are now shunning somebody from their own family, that is a fairly extreme sacrifice. And as a result, rather than necessarily making those people feel worse about that group or that faith or that whatever... They, in fact, double down in terms of their support for it, because now they have sacrificed so much in favor of it. Shunning has been shown to cause psychological damage, and has actually been categorized by some as a type of torture. Shunning can also apply on the individual level, where you as an individual do not believe in something or do not believe in some group, and as a result choose to ignore them or ignore everything that they do and have to say. Now the interesting thing about shunning is that if you get enough people who reject a given idea and as a result shun that idea, you can end up with a new group of people who believe the same things, who shun the same things, who stand in opposition to the same things, and who can then go on to shun others potentially who do not shun the same way that they do. Shunning is a means of controlling the narratives that run through the lives or life of an individual or group, and if you can control what people see and who they interact with, you also in large part control their point of view. And that's what I want to talk about today, the idea of telling people to look away as a means of controlling what they see, and very often, as a result, controlling what they believe. Mm -hmm. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. Today's episode is brought to you by Tongue FM. Tongue.fm, that's T U N G.FM, is a podcast player designed to help you discover the best podcasts by introducing a social element. You can make a profile, share the podcasts that you are listening with other people. You can get a feed of what your friends are recommending. And one of the killer applications to me that Tongue FM has is the ability to share an audio clip from a podcast to social media. And so you can take out a snippet that you enjoy and share it the same way that you would a pull quote from a written article. I also love that you can make a list of your own favorite podcasts so that others can check out what you're listening to, which, by the way, I am on Tongue FM as Colin is my name. So if you would like to see what I'm listening to, Download the app, pop on over and check out what is on my list currently. You can search for tongue.fm, that's again T-U-N-G.fm at the iOS App Store. You can also find a stream of what shows are being currently recommended by users of Tung.fm at Tung.fm. An Android app is planned, but not yet available, so hold tight for that. But if you do have an iOS device or a browser to use, I recommend going and checking that out. I found a lot of value in it already. All right, let's get back to the show. (music) The article that I want to unspool today comes from CNN, and it's entitled Donald Trump Blasts New York Times After Story About Quote Sputtering Unquote Campaign. This article is not unique. It's essentially listing a series of things that Donald Trump and his crew, his campaign team, have said on different media on television, and on the internet, and on Twitter, and in different interviews, and different statements. And on top of a great majority, typically, of these statements being demonstrably untrue. Not just untrue as an opinion, because you, can, you can't you can really have an untrue opinion. You can hold an opinion that seems wrong to other people, but it can still be right to you. But to make so many statements that you can immediately contradict and say, well, no, that's not true. Look, here is some objective fact that says that is not true. It's really quite remarkable, but it it's not remarkable within this campaign season. And the interesting thing about the way that Trump and his people approach this is that they don't just state mistruth after mistruth. They actually attack journalism and other media as they are doing it, which is a very interesting strategy and actually kind of an effective one. Because if you look at the piece, you'll, you'll see that he's not just saying the people who are saying I am wrong are misinformed. He is saying that they lie. They are bad at their jobs. They are intentionally trying to make me look bad. And so as a result, when you have any journalistic entity calling him out on the lies that he is telling or any other mistruth or anything that he does, all he has to do is say, see, I was right. He is in a lot of ways changing the dynamic of the relationship between political candidates and the media. And this is not to say that politicians do not quite often use the media as a scapegoat, that they don't often scapegoat journalists and say, this reporting that you're doing is incorrect or, or bad or looking at even innocent journalists who are just doing their jobs and are not instilling bias whenever possible and using them as a convenient means of getting out of a bad scrape. That is something that does happen. But it happens with clockwork frequency with the Trump campaign. And it happens so frequently, like every other sentence it seems like, that it's not just a convenient means out of a bad scrape. It's not a convenient way of painting over a bad press cycle. It's actually part of a larger strategy to create a situation in which there are no other sources of information for people who listen to him and believe him than him. He is, in a way, trying to create a situation in which his audience will shun any other source of information. Or at the very least, not take them seriously. Rather than arguing with anybody else on an equal playing field, he is simply dismissing the idea that these other people even have the right to argue with him. And as a result of this strategy, there's already been a remarkable amount published of of Trump and his spokespeople saying the most incredible things about data and about factual items and about. Pieces that have been published by the media. In this particular piece, there's a discussion about statements that were made by the New York Times. And the spokesperson for Trump went on CNN and was asked if he would ask the New York Times for a retraction, which is what you would typically do if a newspaper got something wrong. Because if you demand a retraction, then they will print that they were wrong in their next published edition. And this representative dodges around the question and he basically says, Well, he he doesn't say directly much of anything. He's very canny and dodgy with everything that he says. But he basically says or implies that no, they won't be asking for a retraction, which the implied substory here is that if they asked for a retraction, then they would look into the factual accuracy of this and would probably find that the Trump campaign didn't have a leg to stand on. But instead, what he said was that he does not encourage people to read to the New York Times. He says, I encourage you to cancel your subscription. What they're doing over there at the New York Times is bad enough that you shouldn't even read them. Don't take them seriously. So if you look at that, if you, if you dissect that comment a little bit, he is saying that we will not go through the official channels for factual inaccuracy. And instead, I think that you should take my word for it. Don't listen to them. Listen only to me. Do not listen to these purveyors of falsehoods. I and the other people from my campaign are the only people that you can trust. It's very similar to what a lot of charismatic leaders of cults over the years have said. You cannot trust the outside world. You can only trust me. Put absolute faith in me, and all will be well. You don't have to listen to these lie tellers anymore. And the uncomfortable reality is that, again, the Trump campaign is not the only political campaign ever to have done this. Politicians throughout the ages have done this, have tried to make themselves and their campaign the only source for accurate information. The Trump campaign is only really remarkable in how far they have taken this and how they will argue against blatantly obvious factual things and objectively measurable things and contradict themselves within the same sentences. It really is remarkable the level to which they do this and the level to which they get away with it. And part of the reason that they get away with it is that in arguing in this way and kind of jujitsuing the conversation in this way, they are forcing the media to go a little bit meta, to take a step back and self-analyze. Because it's very, very difficult to make unbiased statements to begin with, but even more difficult to make statements that do not seem biased to someone when the person who you are speaking about has such a tenuous relationship with the truth. And when somebody, for example, comes onto a news program and says something like what this Trump campaign guy was saying, it's very difficult to contradict him and to tell him that that is not true in a way that does not seem as if you are just criticizing the Trump campaign and anti-Trump and anti-everything that his supporters stand for. And so what we've got is a situation where journalists are trying to figure out how to convey while doing the work that they're supposed to be doing, which is, you know, bringing the truth to light and making it available to people. They're also kind of struggling to assure the public or explain to the public why you should trust them because the Trump campaign is doing such a good job casting doubt for for some portion of the population, at least on the media as a whole. And so when people look at a discussion between a journalist and a Trump campaign supporter, Well, yeah, the Trump campaign person is very clearly lying in a lot of cases, just flagrantly bold-faced lying, but we can't really trust those journalists either, can we? That's the idea. And so it creates a situation where the liars are not trying to reform themselves. They're not trying to tell fewer lies. What they're trying to do is ensure that they are trusted about as much as the person on the other end of the discussion. And all of this is forcing us to address the question of what journalism really is. Why does it work the way that it works? Why does the press make for such a convenient whipping boy? But also, who do we trust and why? And these questions force us to examine the difference between fact and faith, which is something that's not very often brought into this conversation for a whole lot of reasons, but it's important. It's really, really important to understand how we know things. How do we know what fact is? How do we establish that something is true? What's the difference between fact and data and opinion? And in discussing this, what we really have to discuss is the difference between empiricism and belief. Empiricism refers to a model of testing that allows us to ascertain fact. And probably the most well-known example of an empirical process is the scientific process. And this is a process in which you have independent variables and dependent variables and control groups. Very importantly, you have more than one group of people doing the same research. You have them replicating each other's studies. And this is a system intended to allow us to separate factual evidence from anecdote and opinion and point of view. It's predicated on the idea that reality is objective, not subjective. That we can actually know things that are true for everyone, that's true for reality and the world as a whole, as opposed to Knowing things that are true for some people and not for other people, or true if you believe this way and not true if you believe this other way. If you believe that there can be objective truths, that is truths that are true no matter who you are and no matter what you believe, then it's important to have this type of process. Now that reality, those facts that we establish through this type of process, they are derived from data that we accumulate. And data is is very often numerical, but it doesn't have to be. And data very often takes the forms of weights and measures. It's being able to take the length of something or being able to count the number of people in a group. Using that data, we're very often able to then create an experiment that allows us to ascertain fact. We can take that data to say, oh, look at these numbers here and look at these numbers here. I will bet that there is a law or some type of fact that we can describe that will allow us to better understand this in the future. And this is why we have the table of elements. This is why we have a basic understanding of laws of thermodynamics, and this is why we know at what point paper burns, and all of these other things that we know and that we can put a number on. We most typically... Had some numbers first that we measured, and then we did enough experiments that then we could lock it down and say, okay, these are the numbers. These are the factual numbers of at what temperature this type of paper burns. Now, everything outside of that, everything outside of data derived fact is subjective. And subjectivity, th- this is a word that people throw around a whole lot and don't always define. So, I mean, subjectivity is seeing something through your own lens. It is reality filtered through your perception. It is reality filtered through all of your experiences and all of your biases and all of your preconceived notions and all of your prejudices. And so we can all look at the same car accident and everybody who saw it walk away with a different opinion of what actually happened. And this opinion is shaped by our biases and preconceived notions and prejudices. It's also shaped by our flawed memories and our flawed perception and how we take in information. It may be that we were really stressed out or not paying very close attention when we saw what happened. And as a result, the data that we took in was flawed itself and then we remembered it incorrectly and then the way that we perceived what happened to the story that we told ourselves was partially defined by our prejudices against people of a certain skin color or our prejudices about people who drive a certain type of car. Subjectivity is something that we all fall prey to. It's something that shapes everything that we see. And it is the result of so many different variables that we can't possibly keep track of them all. And this is why having objective things that are true outside of our individual perception. Having objective realities, objective facts is so important. Because if we predicated everything that we did on subjective facts, then there's no way that we would have smartphones in our pockets. We cannot have different opinions about how lithium ion batteries store electricity and use it to generate power for a portable device if we can expect to have an industry around that device. It simply doesn't work. The time for opinions and subjective direction on that is when you're first inventing these different things. When you're first inventing that lithium ion battery, then your own ideas and your own direction matters. But then over time, you do enough experimentation to figure out the quote unquote proper way to do it. And that battery itself and everything that you do with it, the way that it's used is predicated on established fact. And that fact is derived from the data that you generate by doing just bazillions of experiments. And so something that is true, something that is factual, tends to be testable and replicable at least within the scientific model. And now the difficulty here is that journalism doesn't work that way. In journalism we are trying to establish fact, but we don't have that same empirical model to work with. What we have is a completely different model, one that is predicated on the collection of information and the pursuit of more information and the whittling out of misinformation and mistruth so that you can eventually arrive at something that is as close to objective reality as possible so journalism really it's it's an attempt at truthfulness and accuracy objectivity impartiality fairness public accountability there are a lot of different things to consider when you are working on a piece as a journalist, working on an article or a TV spot. But none of these things are rooted in strict numbers or in testable science in the same way, that say developing that lithium-ion battery for your smartphone is. And as a result, what we end up with is a lot of uncomfortable questions. Even people who have the best of intentions and are truly trying to do their jobs as a journalist, they can make mistakes. They can get false information. They can come to false conclusions based on that information. They're always having to ask themselves things like, is it still truthful to leave something out because there's no room to write it in the article? Or because explaining it fully would require many books worth of space to do so? They have to decide how impartial their sources are being. They have to decide if they themselves have figured out the correct narrative Using a collection of what they hope are facts that they have collected? Or is it a narrative that is skewed by their biases or by somebody else's biases? Are they being manipulated in some way, consciously or unconsciously? The big question around journalism really comes down to how impartial can any human being, knowing full well that all of us have inbuilt biases, how impartial can any one person actually be? It's easier within the scientific process because there are built-in mechanisms to weed out bias. Every once in a while, somebody will come in and skew the results of their experiment because they had preconceived ideas of what it would be, or in some cases there was money handed off or something. It's incredibly unusual to get skewed results, but it does happen. And the reason that we know this is because it tends to be caught, either immediately or a couple years later. Because of that replicability thing, where other people will redo experiments to make sure that they work the way that they're supposed to, to make sure it wasn't a one off mistake that it worked that way. There are people checking in on this. There are people constantly trying to poke holes in these arguments. And if anything survives all of that poking, there's a pretty good chance that it's something that's objective fact. You can't really do that within journalism. You can have people checking into other people's work. But because there's so much potential for human error involved, and because what you're doing in a lot of cases is weeding through just a, a pile of different people's prejudices and biases and preconceived notions, the most you can hope for is arriving at something that is pretty damn close to the truth. I don't think that you can ever establish absolute fact using the tools that journalism has available. And those aren't the only issues that journalism has. These days, there is an immense profit motive in everything that journalists do. I talked about this in a past episode called Click, the idea that our online economy in particular, which is increasingly becoming at least part of our just in economy in general, but the online economy, which is where a lot of these media entities make a great deal of their money these days, they have an immense motive to get more views and clicks. And as a result, even an incredibly well-written and well-researched article might have a really skeezy headline that changes the meaning, or that is the only meaning that a lot of people take away, because a lot of people only read headlines rather than reading the entire article. We, all of us, also fall prey to filter bubbles, and journalists are no different. They're both doing a lot to fit within people's filter bubbles, and as a result, they might slant articles certain ways to try to get Facebook to deliver it to a certain portion of their audience. But also the people just writing the articles themselves are in filter bubbles and as a result might miss out on information simply because it's not being delivered to them, because the algorithms that tend to designate what we see are not giving them all sides of a particular story just by default. We're also seeing increasingly a conflict within the media slash journalism world, where the so-called fourth estate, which is the traditional journalism entities like newspapers and broadcast media, are running up against and sometimes even coming into conflict with the so-called fifth estate, which is a title commonly applied to people like bloggers and the non-mainstream media podcasters. And this is troublesome because not only does this amplify the effect of that profit motive that journalistic entities have, it also creates a misperception about legitimacy of different journalistic entities. There are an immense number of incredibly high-quality journalistic entities within the fifth state, so like bloggers, independent podcasters, people of that nature, but there are also a great number of just waste words being generated by that group. And you could say the same in the fourth estate, but typically these are slightly, at least slightly more refined entities that have a lot more incentive not to just generate bile. Whereas the fifth estate, a lot of business models there are predicated on conspiracy theories and predicated on. The worst types of prejudice and hate and intentional misinformation, the idea being that they are not holding themselves up to the same journalistic standards as somebody within the fourth estate, and as a result, they're not so likely to, say, differentiate between an opinion piece and a news article. They're not going to differentiate between where they are trying to deliver facts or at least data to their audience as opposed to giving a a pure opinion from somebody who may or may not actually have an informed opinion. And all of this then runs up against the unfortunate fact that people have problems with quote-unquote truth that conflicts with their preconceived notions, with their existing perceptions about the world. And this is a big reason why these filter bubbles exist. We are more likely to interact and click around and like things and share things on Facebook when we're being fed things that reinforce our existing worldviews. And if journalism then presents us with something that conflicts with our existing worldviews, we are far more likely, because it makes us more comfortable to do so, to call them out and say, well, that's just your opinion, or to assume that they are bad journalists, that they're not doing their jobs, as opposed to doing the, (laughs) I mean, rational thing and saying, oh, maybe I'm wrong about this. We have to be paying very close attention if we're going to do something like that. And unfortunately, it's not the first option that comes to mind. More likely for all of us is that reflexive shunning, or light shunning at least, of a particular entity, news entity or otherwise, that says something that we perceive to be incorrect. The New York Times says something that I don't like. Well, they are clearly bad journalists. Therefore, I'm going to watch Fox News instead. And again, it's very easy, or relatively easy, within things like science or math to show that somebody that you disagree with is right or wrong. It's very easy to make an argument that is just all, all but infallible, something that you can prove objectively. This is not the case within journalism. And we are really seeing those bounds being pushed right now further than ever before, because they have always been pushed. There has never been a politician who has not lied. There has never been a campaign that has not lied for their politician. There's never been a public figure probably who hasn't lied at some point. It's just that what we're seeing now is a situation where rather than an attempt to get to a collectively agreed upon narrative that happens to support you, what we are seeing is an attempt to completely change that narrative. And a willingness to say, yes, that's your narrative, I understand that, and yes, you're supporting that with different data and things that you perceive to be facts, but this is my narrative, so booyah. There's no attempt to come up with an objective reality from one of the sides involved here, the Trump camp. They are more than willing to tell their own story and to say that everyone else who has a different story is not just wrong. They don't just have a different opinion. They are dead wrong. They are not doing their jobs. They are bad at what they're doing. They are intentionally spewing lies to try to get you to ignore the truth that only I can offer. And most typically something like this wouldn't work very well, but because of the confluence of those other things that I mentioned and that desire to have a narrative that supports your preconceived notions and because of the unique personality that somebody like trump is and their inability to be shamed in any way and shame is a really really important component of shunning but but also of trying to keep someone who is in the public eye from completely going off the rails and deviating from that desire to create a common narrative and so because he has no shame, he, you, you cannot keep him in line and he will gleefully go out into the world and say anything that will support his narrative, regardless of the fact that there might be other narratives that it directly conflicts with. And as a result of all of those other things I mentioned, there's no absolute scientific way to prove him wrong. All you can do is say, well, look, we have these charts. Look, we have these polls. Look, we have all this data. That's wrong. And he can say, yeah, that's your opinion. The consequences of this, the consequences of attempting to destroy journalism as a means of establishing some kind of common narrative, as close to fact as we can possibly get, is immense. It, it's not that we've ever had a really pure unified media. It's not that we have a journalism body that is dedicated towards one common goal but what we have had is a group of people who have very different editorial sections so when they are giving their opinions they have very very different opinions to give but that have in general at least orbited a common set of data and a common set of as close to facts as we can get But creating this dynamic where we're just simply comparing narratives and simply denying that data exists or denying that the people on the other side of the debate table exist or deny that they are legitimate enough to be there debating you in the first place. That's, it's, it's a strategy that results in an inability to establish credible fact or as close to fact as we can get it's something that weakens our attempt to come up with objective reality it weakens our attempt to come up with a collective narrative that we can all agree on more or less so that then we can have opinions within that narrative because that that is a narrative that is built by the best that we can understand about the world and instead what we've got is is divergent narratives we've got different groups Saying publicly and expressing repeatedly that the other person's entire perception of the world, entire worldview, entire reality is incorrect or flawed. It creates a wildly different dynamic because it means that you can't actually argue about anything and come to any conclusions. You can't actually have a debate that results in anything. All you can do is shout past each other, all you can do is rally the base preach to the choir we typically have a central trusted source of information and that source takes the shape of many different journalistic entities but as a collective there seemed to be a common goal and at least a baseline of what reality we're talking about but that is being eroded by people who would prefer that we doubt what we hear except from them and somewhat cynically this is something that makes a great deal of sense strategically particularly if you don't believe that you can compete within that heretofore shared reality. But it's a very cynical way of approaching things. It's basically looking down at a chessboard and not understanding what a lot of the pieces do and knowing that the person on the other side is probably going to clobber you. And so instead of playing chess, you play backgammon. The other person looks at you, not understanding why you're using all the pieces incorrectly and why you seem to be playing a different game. And the people watching aren't quite sure what to do. They're not quite sure if you're winning, if you're losing. Should they cheer at the fact that you're playing a different game despite the fact that the other people want to play this game that you typically play? Should they hate you for doing something different and deviating from the norms? There's going to be a lot of people in the audience who have always hated chess and like the idea of introducing something new. Even if they don't particularly understand backgammon, they'll like the idea that they're not playing chess anymore because they see themselves as somebody who doesn't play chess well either. Whereas the other people in the audience and the people on the other side will just be confounded and they will flop around for a while, not quite sure what to do, continuing to play chess, but deciding at some point that they probably need to do something to counter you at backgammon as well. That's kind of the situation that we have right now within US politics. Just imagine what it would look like if something like this happened within science. I mean, there, there's always been people who have doubted science, who, for some reason, typically because they don't understand it, and they cannot fathom how some of these things could fit within their worldview, there's always been people who have said, yes, the world is flat, and we we never landed on the moon, and there's a lot of interesting conspiracy theories out there that revolve around this, and revolve around some element of science. But most typically, we we agree on this, even even if there's people who are being paid off to deny that climate science is a real thing, for example, uh, which is more politics than science, they're still drawing from the same pool of facts and they're very intentionally denying those facts. But if we didn't have those collective facts, if we didn't have this collective pool of data and this method of empirical inquiry, we couldn't make anything. We We wouldn't have production like we have. Our entire economy would cease to function because we wouldn't be able to agree on the fundamentals, like at what temperature paper burns much less the highly sophisticated things like how do you develop autonomous vehicles? What data do those cars need to have so that they don't just run people over willy-nilly? What that type of distrust in science would do is remove our ability to trust the process and the people involved in that process. And I would argue that nobody's worthy of 100% trust. We still need to pay attention and make sure that we're putting our trust in the right people. But largely the process alleviates the need to see things happening before we believe it. I do not need to go through and replicate every single experiment that resulted in the factual information that we have that led to the creation of the smartphone in my pocket. If I did that, it would take years and years, generations maybe, to replicate all of that because so much information so much data had to be collected and to gain that data so so much research had to be done so much scientific inquiry had to be done that for one person to try to do it wouldn't make any sense and so having this structure allows us to work as a group and to do so in such a way that we trust that we are working within the same reality and that we're not going to do anything to mess with that to ruin that and now we have to think about that in journalism what does it mean when trust is eroded what does it mean When we're no longer willing to say, oh yeah, the polls say this, okay, that makes sense. Now let's spin it based on what what those polls say. And instead just saying, oh, I don't trust the polls. No, that data you've collected doesn't make sense to me. I don't believe it. I believe these places that we're actually doing well. I believe that we're bringing out numbers here. Therefore, this is the relevant data that we need to be paying attention to. It's flipping the script, and as a result, it is eroding that trust in journalism. And so as a result, we're less likely to say, I have these trusted sources who are better at this than me, who are focusing all of their time and energy on collecting this type of information, whereas I am not, so I should trust this person. And instead, we're looking at them and saying, yeah, I wonder what their angle is. Again, it would be the same as looking at a scientist who tells you that paper burns at this temperature, and you looking at them askance and just saying, yeah, I wonder what this scientist's angle is. I wonder why they're trying to make me believe that paper burns at this temperature. We do need to be skeptical. I I absolutely think we need to be skeptical. And there's always things within science and there's always things within journalism that we're finding out later were not true, or were not 100% true, or were not as true as we were led to believe that they were. And so it's really, really important that we do maintain vigilance on this because it's very easy to be misled and misinformed if you don't pay attention. I tend to try to get my news from as many different sources as possible because then as a result, you're able to better make the decision about what you believe and what you don't believe and what information is more likely to be closer to fact as opposed to something that is a an optimistic view on incomplete data that happens to support somebody's biases or somebody else's biases. But if we don't have any faith, I guess you could call it. It's, it's not really faith, because faith requires you to believe without having any reason to believe. And I would argue that historically, we have a lot of reason to believe in the scientific community. And we have a lot of reason to believe most journalists too. As long as you take in the information correctly and understand how it's being presented to you, most of what you get is going to be as close to truth as you can possibly get, much closer than you can get on your own, at least. But because of the way this argument is going and because of the way that our trust in journalism is being eroded, we are left with little else but faith. And there have been times in history where we have relied more on faith than on the aggregation of fact and a common reality that we've built from that. Times like the Dark Ages. <laughs> I mean, when when you look at when faith is used, and, and I use this not in the necessarily religious context, I, I'm not trying to poo-poo the idea of having faith in something as a religious exercise, but in the idea of our collective reality and how we govern and how we build things and how we run our economy, these are all things that we shouldn't believe because somebody says so. We shouldn't believe because all other mechanisms of, of trying to achieve understanding have been either removed as options or have been criticized to the point where we find that we can't even consider them. And so in a lot of cases, when we are told that we should just believe somebody, not because they've given us any good reason to, but because they said so, and we should just trust that they know what they're doing, not because they've shown us any data that explains why we should, but because they say so. And when we're told to follow somebody not because they've given us any data but because they say so those have typically been times like the dark ages it's been moments and places where people have lived under autocratic regimes and under military rule it's frankly situations where you you see a lot of shunning taking place because if somebody then argues with this narrative that is being established by say a charismatic leader That's somebody that you want to get out of the cult. That's somebody that you do not want in there poisoning everybody else's minds because a leader of that sort is not beholden to anybody and not beholden to fact of any kind. So they can typically get away with it too. They can say, trust me, this is for the greater good. Leave your family behind. Do as I say, trust me. In the past, throughout human history, when we have allowed belief to supersede facts, we we've ended up in very dark periods we've killed off philosophers and scientists and thinkers of all sorts because they question something that's well established and well established not in the way that a scientific principle is well established but well established because somebody says so and anybody who fails to fall into lockstep without question with those ideologies is forcefully removed, either by shunning or through more permanent means. The thing is, when people say things like, don't trust those polls," they aren't saying, question everything because you are the only person who can accurately ascertain truth, and there may be flaws in this data. They're saying, don't trust those other people. Trust me and only me. This is why data-centric fields and practices exist, so that we don't have to trust and so that we don't have to trust potential demagogues, and frankly, so that we don't have to trust ourselves either. A great deal of the evidence that each of us have in our minds is collected anecdotally, which means that we collect it because we experienced it or we heard from somebody who experienced it. It's secondhand anecdotal. But that is, as I mentioned before, flawed data. It is filtered through our experiences. It is filtered through our biases and prejudices and our preconceived notions. And so any data, anything that we experience firsthand, that's not really good enough either. We need a mechanism for filtering through that so that we can establish fact from anecdote, from even just raw data that we've collected. We need to have an outside, third-party, testable, replicable means of determining this fact. It's not just because it's good to test and retest ideas. It's because without this mechanism... All we have are individual opinions and quote-unquote truths that are determined by a given person's perspective, flawed memories, cognitive biases, and the like. Diversion is a key component to performing magic, like illusions, on stage. The magician gets you looking where they want you to look, and then your brain fills in the blanks of what happened, and then they do the real trick outside of where you're looking. And so you're more likely to see how something is actually done if you look exactly opposite of where the magician tells you to look if everything is telling you to look at his left hand look at his right or look off stage and the same is true with politics or or anything like politics really people will tell you to look away to look at something else and if you have no concrete means of establishing what happened they can tell you anything happened they can fill in the blanks however they like If you weren't looking as they were doing what they were doing, as they were performing the actual trick, then they can tell you any narrative they like, and you have to decide whether that's good enough or not, whether you are willing to have faith in that, or if you require some kind of proof. Politicians are great at magic. They are really good at performing these types of tricks, and their PR teams help out. They spend a great deal of time and money trying to get you to look away, to look away from what's actually happening, and to look at the trick, and then believe them when they tell you that those doves came out of nowhere. They do this by spinning news. They do this by manipulating the news cycles. They do this by making sure that other stories beyond those that they don't want you to pay attention to actually dominate the headlines. They do this by telling you that the facts are not facts, they're just opinions, and that your opinions, untethered from reality as they might be, are equal to those you hear on the news. And it flatters us to feel this way. It flatters us to think that we have the answers. Of course, we've always suspected that we were right and other people were wrong, but it's nice to have that reinforced. It's nice to feel that we possess the correct answers and that our way of viewing the world is the correct way of viewing the world. It's nice to think that these uncomfortable things that we hear from scientists or journalists are wrong. Wrong because that they can't possibly be true based on the way that we see the world. Wrong because it makes us very uncomfortable to think that perhaps the way that we see the world might be in some way, anyway, even in some small way, flawed. When someone says something like, "I encourage people not to read this newspaper and to cancel their subscriptions," as opposed to going through official channels and doing what they can to legally have it removed because they can prove that it's a mistruth, they're attempting to imply mistruth and water down the authority of journalism rather than trying to fight fact with fact. Rather than trying to pit their narrative directly up against the narrative of somebody else's, they're trying to play backgammon during a chess match. Do journalists always get it right? No. Do they tend to have less skin in the game than politicians in their hired guns? Very often, yes. Not always, but most often, yes. And does this mean that they'll be more likely to provide facts and data rather than opinions? Also, yes. Depending on the news entity that we're talking about, yes, usually. One other thing that I'll say, and this is something that I found to be the case almost always, whether we're talking about politics or religion or sports or anything else. A belief that cannot stand up to a hard look and a one on one challenge against other beliefs is probably one that you should question. You should ask why it's not willing to compete directly. A belief that requires adherence to ignore other people or other data other narratives, is probably one that you should question. A belief that encourages you to seek alternatives, to try them on for mental size, and then determine the best fit based on data, experience, on your own point of view, is one that you can probably feel relatively safe considering. These are, unfortunately, few and far between, but I will note this is something that good science and good journalism do tend to do. This episode of Let's Know Things was brought to you by HostGator. HostGator is the hosting company that I've been using for years. I am very, very satisfied with their service across all of the different projects that I've used it for. In addition to having wonderful uptime and incredible customer service and really, really intuitive, easy-to-use tools to get started, whether you're building your first blog or whether you're building a massive website for a great big company, they have all the tools that you'll need built right in. And on top of that, they're also offering substantial discounts to listeners of Let's Know Things. So if you go to hostgator.com LKT, as in Let's Know Things, LKT you will get those discounts. This episode is also sponsored by Audible. I have been listening to many, many audiobooks of late. I find that they are great substitutes for podcasts from time to time because audiobooks are essentially just great big long podcasts. And if you want to try out audiobooks, if you haven't used Audible before, a great way to give it a shot is to go to audibletrial.com lkt which will garner you a free month of Audible and a free audiobook of your choice from their massive collection of audiobooks. You can find a bunch of my books on there, but I'd also like to make a recommendation of a book that you should try out, one that I just read recently. It's called Infomocracy, and it is a novel by Malka Older. And this novel is fascinating. It's set in a near future in which nation-states and governments as we have traditionally known them have disappeared. That we we came to a head with our conflict and couldn't manage it anymore, and decided collectively as a planet to build a different sort of system. And the way the system operates is the planet's population is divided up into populations of a hundred thousand people, and each of these populations votes on a different government that they want to have. And so, picture the world divided up like a checkerboard, and each of these populations of 100,000 is governed by a different government. They elect a government from one of these dozens or hundreds that exist, one of these options. And the governments themselves, some of them are former corporations like Philip Morris, and others are policy-focused, like Policy First, which doesn't even have individual politicians. It doesn't have like a presidential candidate or anything. It just has policies that they enact, and it's very data-based but all of them are vying for as many of these different squares of 100,000 people populations as possible because the one that has the most becomes the supermajority. The way that this system operates, the way that it persists, is that there is a global collective bureaucracy called the information. And the information's job is to present unbiased data through kind of an internet service called the information to everybody on the planet, so that they have access to all data that they could possibly need to make a decision, and to run the elections and to ensure the smooth transition of power. But beyond that, they don't do anything. They don't rule in any real sense of the way. The governments do that. They just manage the bureaucracy. And so it would be as if like a giant UN with massively more power and which had a stranglehold control of the internet and all journalism that took place on earth was suddenly managing worldwide elections that took place every 10 years, and each election happened on an uber-local level. That's the big-picture space in which the novel takes place, and it's a really, it's a fun story and very interesting and action-packed. But the world itself is also kind of a star of the tale in my mind because it gives a really interesting look at what some of these different governmental structures might look like. Some things that you look at and think, okay, that would never happen, and then some things you look at and think, huh, why don't we do that now in reality? That would be interesting. That would work better than what we've got. And being able to imagine these different ways of living really helps you then imagine which way things need to go. And so this type of fiction is really wonderful to me and worth checking out. Again, that is Infomocracy by Malka Older, and you can find that on Audible. Usually it's 20-something dollars, I think, but you can get it for free. If you go to audibletrial.com slash LKT, that helps the show, but also helps you. So hopefully you enjoy that if you give it a shot. So you can help support the show by checking out those sponsors. You can also help directly. You can share this show with a friend. You can rate it on iTunes. You can contribute directly monetarily as well. If you go to letsknowthings.com, there's a bunch of different links there that will show you how you can contribute a dollar an episode, or more if you like, but a dollar an episode would be amazing. Also on letsknowthings.com, you can sign up for the Let's Know Things newsletter, which is a curated weekly newsletter that comes out every Monday, in which I share a bunch of the most interesting links that I have found in the prior week. You can also find the show notes for every episode on letsknowthings.com, so highly recommend doing that if you haven't already. I share a bunch of additional information for each episode in writing with links in the show notes. You can find Let's know Things on Facebook and on Instagram at letsknowthings. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. There you will find a complete list of books and links to my other projects. I have a YouTube show called Consider This, which can be found at considerthis.io. And you can find me pretty much everywhere on the internet at Colin Is My Name. Everywhere from Twitter to Snapchat to Instagram to Vine, you will find me at Colin Is My Name. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. <music> Mm ¶¶